This is Sabrina Marie of the Building Abundance Success Series. Our spotlight is on democracy. My guest is Don Siegelman, former governor of the state of Alabama. He is the only person in history in that state to be elected to the four top statewide elected offices. Secretary of State, Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor, and Governor, and he served in politics for 26 years. He was convicted of bribery and sentenced five years in prison, but his case was questioned by more than 100 former attorney generals and officials, both Democrat and Republican, and they petitioned the Supreme Court. He has a great new book that talks about his life and times called Stealing Our Democracy. How the Political Assassination of a Governor Threatens Our Nation, and it's coming out this June, mid-June 2020. We talked to Don about not only being born in Mobile and how Mobile is different than most areas of Alabama, but his upbringing and his venture into public service and what he's doing now. To find out more about Don and his story, you can go to the website, stealingourdemocracy.com, and you'll find out not only about how to get the book, but about his story in this case, which has been covered by the New York Times, CNN, Time Magazine, MSNBC, Fox, just to name a few. Don and I are coming at you right now. I um, thought it would be great to interview you and talk about, you know, who Don Siegelman is, where you're from originally, and how did you get into public service. And you can take as much time as you want because I think that it would help our listeners to, to know who Don Siegelman is before he became a politician. Well, I think that's uh, that's a, an interesting thought, and I'd, I'd actually devote the first part of my book, "Stealing Our Democracy," which is out in June. I think I, I think I sent you some information on it, but um, yeah, I I felt it was important for people to know, you know, where I came from, how I got to be who I am, and um, you know what makes Don Sigelman the person that he is and um, why I was viewed as such a threat to some people who were in power at the time. Um, and, you know, the, the my book juxtaposes what happened to me to what's happening in Washington today. And the uh, I've had several people comment that if, if Congress had had heeded Chairman John Conyers' warning back then that if they did not hold Karl Rove accountable for what he was doing, if they did not hold him accountable for his his and George Bush and uh, Alberto Gonzalez's abuse of power of turning the Department of Justice into a political weapon, that it was going to come back and happen again. And now we are witnessing uh, that, you know, John Conyers' prophecy. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Donald Trump is doing exactly the same thing. 
and yeah, I mean we can go through that if you want to. But yeah, I I would be happy to uh, talk to you about whatever. Well, we I read that you're from Mobile. Um, Mobile is a total different country than than uh, many of the other parts of Alabama. <laughs> Talked about <laughs> tell us about a little bit about your background uh, well, uh, uh, from Mobile uh, to uh, through college. What were your aspirations as a kid? What did you really want to do? Yeah, being 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 from Mobile is like being from the 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 part of the moon that's lit up uh, as compared to the rest of Alabama. Um, I, I grew up in a loving household. I had a wonderful mother and father, a very stable environment. I was very blessed. Uh, my brother and I, um, you know, became who we are because of the values that were instilled by our parents. And, um, our father uh, was a, um, oh, most of his life a piano and organ and music salesman and um, had three heart attacks in succession after working for this company for some 33 years and was was fired uh, without any uh, pension or health insurance and and at the age of about 55 and, and, and became a, uh, and started working with his hands and became a house painter and did wallpaper and sheetrock and was, uh, you know, we were, we were, we were fine. My mother was a beautician. She, um, she used to, <laughs> she used to claim that she made people beautiful. Uh, but anyway, she enjoyed what she did and she was a beautician from the time she was 16. She had to, Drop out of school when she was in high school to take care of her little sister who was sick, but uh, earned a living as a beautician and remained such until she was in her 70s when she uh, had just a uh, increasingly bad dementia and uh, we needed to get help to both my mother and my dad. But I can give you a couple of examples that that um, I talk about in my forthcoming book, Sealing Our Democracy. My dad came home from work one day early, and which was unusual. But I met him at the back door and greeted him, and he said, "Donnie, I, I heard from your mother that you used a bad word today." And I said, I'm "Not sure, you know what what." what you mean and he said well he said your mother said that you had used he didn't say the n-word he said the word and I said yes sir I did and he said where did you learn that word and I said I, I heard it at school from some of my friends and he said well I want you to we sat down at the kitchen table which is where we had our discussions and he said I want you to go get the dictionary and, and so I went to our second bedroom where we had a little bookshelf with um, some encyclopedias my mother had bought with S&H green stamps, and that, which they gave out at grocery stores in those days. If you were a, uh, a patron, they gave you extra little stamps, and you could earn credit and buy things with them. Anyway, she bought a dictionary and, and a set of encyclopedias. 
So I tried to look up the word in the dictionary, and after uh, several attempts, my dad said, let me give you a hint. It's not in there. There is no such word. He said, the word is Negro. Look that up. And I did, and he said, that's the only word I want you to use. And he he went on to stress the need to address Negro men as sir and women as ma'am. And then he invited me to work with uh, a young man that was his piano delivery guy and uh, faithful, young, strong African-American man on that Saturday, which I did. And, you know, it was an important lesson for me, uh, not only to hear from my dad what he expected of me, but also to work with this young man who I could see, uh, you know, had value and, and, and also cared about my father. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a little emotional talking about this, but it, 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 it touched my heart then as it does now. Mm-hmm. And my mother, um, she was the uh, religious rock of our family. She took my brother and myself to church every Sunday, whether we wanted to go or not. And uh, we usually, of course, had to go to Sunday school first. Um, And one day when we were walking downtown in Mobile, she said, Donnie, do you see that old lady over there standing on the corner? I want you to go ask her if you can help her cross the street. And so I did. And... She was teaching me that, you know, good works are something that you have to perform. It's not just Mm -hmm. something you hear about in church that you actually have to take action before, you know, you really internalize it and it becomes part of you. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the the next experience that comes to mind, which I also write about in in stealing our democracy, is that as a teenager in high school, I volunteered with my high school fraternity to uh, on different what we call charity projects, and one of them was to help children with disabilities uh, attend the Alabama Greater Gulf State Fair. And it happened to be a, a kind of a soggy day. It had rained and the sawdust was mucky. And the young lady that I was supposed to help was in a wheelchair and she, you know, her wheelchair couldn't make it through the, through the entrance. So, 
I, I picked her up and carried her to the first ride, which was, uh, in those days, we called it a spider. I have no idea what they call it now, but it's a mechanical, uh, looks like an octopus that with the arms that go up and down, and you're sitting in chairs, and the chairs uh, little spin around, and, and she had the most wonderful time. Um, and though she had trouble speaking, was, you know, filled with joy, and that, <clears throat> that too touched my heart, and, and, and gave me a sense of what it would be like to devote myself to public service. Um, and I think, you know, those experiences and others that that I had throughout my life, you know, made me who I am and made me the public official uh, that I was. Mm-hmm. Awesome. The Don Siegelman teenager, college, what was on your mind? Um, you learned from those experiences that your parents instilled in you, and, um, and they inspired you. What was it like um, in your formidable years of uh, teenage through college? What were you aspiring to be, or did you really not know? Huh. Well, I think like like most teenagers, I really didn't know what I was doing or where I was going. But um, I um, I knew I had to had to make good grades in college. Um, you know, my mom and dad did not have uh, that opportunity, and I didn't want to let them down. Uh, so I studied hard my first semester and. Uh, stayed away from politics and college fraternities until the, the spring of my freshman year. Uh, I was recruited and, and joined a, a college fraternity and was asked to be the interfraternity council representative. And, and then the next year was encouraged to run for the uh, what we call the Senator from Arts and Sciences, the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Alabama. Um, I did, and at that by that time, uh, student uh, student student power and 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 student rights were being talked about at, at colleges around the country. And as I prepared to run for president of the Student Government Association at the University of Alabama in 1967. Um, I became um, more uh, aware of and uh, aware of the need and 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 the importance of students taking a more active role in in determining what they were going to study and what their professors how their professors were behaving in class and um, what kind of uh, service students could offer to to people in the community, um, and that so I, I I really really got involved in trying to uh, change the uh, 
the academic structure at Alabama to provide for a what it what we called a free college. It was a, a college that would be devoted to teaching of current courses on issues such as the war in Vietnam. Um, we engaged students to work after school as tutors and to work in housing projects to organize tenants to push for um, better living conditions. And, of course, the issue that was uh, paramount was the war in Vietnam and um, I became increasingly involved with uh, African-American students and others um, in how we could have an impact uh, through politics, through voter registration and delegate selection work um, on the war. And, and I, uh, at, the, at the time, met a, a young man. Uh, he was young, probably old then for me, but he was 31. He was a um, a teacher in, from North Carolina who had been involved in the sit-ins in North Carolina and had also been involved in the Mississippi Summer Voter Registration Summer. Um, and he was leading an effort to convince Lyndon Johnson to step down in favor of a peace candidate for the Democratic Party in 1960. 768, and we made several trips into Mississippi and, and to uh, work with Aaron Henry and other civil rights leaders to uh, try to form a coalition delegation of Lyndon Johnson delegates uh, and, and, and peace delegates, delegates who were committed to voting for a peace candidate. Um, but uh, anyway, we, uh, you know, my my life from there, with my association with uh, Howard Lowenstein, changed directions. I um, skip over a few years, but um, I had entered entered law school at the University of Alabama. I, I dropped out to work in his Howard Lowenstein's campaign for Congress in New York in 1968, and then worked. Uh, worked on his staff and, and went to Georgetown Law School in Washington um, and became more involved in, in activities to elect a peace candidate in 1972 and elect delegates to the 72 convention who were, would be committed to voting for a peace candidate. And so my life continued in a direction of uh, of working in in politics uh, throughout law school, I went to went to graduate school at, at Oxford, England, and studied international law. Wrote a thesis on the attempts to limit weapons of mass destruction, and then came back and began my uh, career in Alabama, working with an uh, astute young lawyer Robert S. Vance Sr., who was later appointed by Jimmy Carter to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. But anyway, had a wonderful early life and filled with politics and activity and uh, involvement in what those things I thought important. 
Wow. Now, <laughs> I was thinking about what you were saying. You went to Georgetown and then went to Oxford. Uh, a guy from Alabama, had you actually traveled and was in a culture shock going to D.C.? <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, was it a culture shock in D.C. or or Africa? Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, because you're from Alabama now. You're talking about a totally different uh, vibe. Totally different. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I I, um, I lived on South Capitol and D Streets, one block from the Longworth House Office Building, where Congressman Lowenstein had his office. Uh, Rode, rode my bicycle to Georgetown, and uh, when when Al was gerrymandered out of his district in 1970, I uh, worked for him until he left in 71, and then started working uh, with the Civil Rights Division, the criminal section of the Civil Rights Division, uh, looking at the misbehavior of National Guardsmen and police officers who used excessive force. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, a, it was something of a culture shock, but, you know, visiting the Corcoran Museum and others and the Smithsonian uh, on the weekends and, uh, you know, meeting a, a wide variety of of political activists, journalists, and uh, broadcasters were, was a, a, a great experience. Um, I write about some of this in Stealing Our Democracy. I actually wrote a, while I was in prison for five years straight, um, I had plenty of time to write, obviously, so I, I wrote... Um, I wrote a lot for lots of different reasons. I wrote posts. I wrote newsletters. I wrote for other inmates. I wrote petitions. I, you know, I, I did all of that. But I also, also wrote about my life and what happened to me and why and who was involved. And it ended up being uh, quite a story. It was uh, about 650 pages and. When I got out, I went to see Al Gore, who had he and I had been relatively close. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we we had I visited his home in Washington and Nashville, and um, uh, he sent me to his agent in New York. And the uh, conclusion of all that was that the the book was way too long and needed to be cut and. So what I have published in Stealing Our Democracy is a version of this 650-page uh, uh, memoir. Um, it's a little, you know, shorter, punchier. Um, the reader won't have any trouble going from chapter to chapter. It's, it's I'm not going to say it's a page-turner on every page, but I hope it is. Um, and... But a lot of a lot of what I, I wrote about in the 640-page version is is not, of course, in the uh, the shorter version. This is a, a uh, the, the stealing our democracy is non nonfiction, of course, and is uh, got about 40 or 50 pages of footnotes at the back, and 
so it's it's well done, and I'm I'm very pleased with the uh, with the publisher, New South Books. Um, they they have done a very good job, and the editor, Randall Williams, uh, worked uh, easily with me to to uh, maintain my voice, and very little was changed in terms of you know sentence structure or um, any emphasis. Uh, very very little. I was I was very pleased by working with Randall. So I hope my readers enjoy it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Awesome. Now, you uh, are the only person in the history of Alabama to serve in four different positions while uh, actually in your career, a Secretary of State and Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor and Governor. And um, it goes back to that question, did you want to be a politician? Was that something that was on your mind in college? When did that enter into the picture? Well, I have to tell you this. I had I had two other career thoughts. One, I was in church with my mother. I was holding her hand, and I was raised Catholic, and I was, we were at St. Joan of Arc's church, a little small parish church, and I was looking up at the at the at the I, I still call them preachers, but anyway, the uh, I. I thought, well, you know, I could, I could do that. I could be, I could be a Catholic priest, and that that thought vanished within about fifteen minutes. So that that was one <laughs> career choice that went out the door. The second was um, after seeing my dad fired after being after having worked his heart out for thirty three years. I thought about being a dentist because, you know. Normally, dentists can't be fired. You know, you just are on your own, and you you earn your own way through life. And and then I went to uh, went to the University of Alabama, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I, I thought, I, you know, I entered pre pre to pre dent, and then went into business, and then eventually into uh, the School of Arts and Sciences. And I really had no thought about being an elected official, I, I really not until I finished um, at Oxford and came back to Alabama. I was working for um, again for Robert S. Vance Sr. and he was being challenged by George Wallace. Wallace was trying to take over. Governor Wallace was trying to take over the state Democratic Party so he could use it as a springboard to run for president again. And uh, our job. Bob Vance's job, and he hired me to run his campaign for re-election in, in, in opposition to Wallace's proposed takeover. Our job was to find uh, people who were loyal to the National Democratic Party or loyal to Bob Vance who could be elected to the state Democratic Party to fend off this attempt by Wallace to take it over. And 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 in 1974, we were successful and. Uh, we were able, with Governor Wallace on the floors, you know, of course he was in a wheelchair smoking his cigar. Uh, I'll never forget the expression on his face. His mouth just dropped open when he lost <laughs> that vote. Um, he could not believe that his 
his organization had had led him in to sit on the floor of that small convention and to watch a defeat that he thought sure was going to be a victory. But we were able to maintain the party's loyalty to the National Party, and Jimmy Carter was elected at the next presidential cycle in 76, and I had the pleasure of introducing him uh, when he came to Sanford University uh, here in Birmingham and as a presidential candidate. And when he was elected, he appointed Bob as a federal judge. And with that, I talked to Bob about my running for Secretary of State. He he thought I should run for the Public Service Commission, but I, I was really engaged in in election reform, and I had seen so many things wrong with our system that I wanted to change it, and Secretary of State spot was the best place to to launch an election reform effort, and so that's what I did, and um, yeah. and stayed there for for two terms. I had thought about running for the U.S. Senate against Jeremiah Denton in 1986. Well, thought about it in earlier than that, 84 and 85. And, and, uh, but my wife and I were hit head on by a drunk driver and in 1985. Um, and that really changed, changed our, my life and our, our, my trajectory. I, I, I just couldn't. I, I couldn't leave Alabama. My, uh, I, our daughter was born a year later, and I knew that if I was elected to the U.S. Senate, and I felt like I had a pretty good shot at it for a number of different reasons we don't need to go into. I do go into them a little bit in the book, but um, James Carville was my consultant. Back, that was before he became nationally known and nationally famous, but uh, he helped me make the transition from U.S. Senate to Attorney General because I felt like, you know, as AG, I could stay in the state, I could be with my family, I could still work on election reform issues, and I was elected, and I did. Um, one of the one of the the things I'm most proud of as Attorney General, and there are a lot of things that I wish I could go back and redo, because I would, but one of the things that I did was to settle a lawsuit. Uh, an African-American friend of mine who had supported me for Secretary of State, John Dillard, was from Crenshaw County, Alabama, and had sued Crenshaw County, and it was a uh, state class action um challenging at-large districts. And so the, one of the first things I did as, as Attorney General was to basically switch sides and take the side of the plaintiff and to settle a lawsuit to force every city and county in the state to redistrict, to redraw all city commission, city council, boards of education, county commissions, uh, so that African Americans would have a fair shot at being elected, and 
with that, there was an advent of hundreds and hundreds of African-American candidates qualifying the next year and thousands qualifying years after that. So, um, you know, just opening the door to fairness in our political system, both as Secretary of State, uh, making voting itself more accessible, making voter registration easier, extending the hours that people could vote, putting ballots on cassette and in Braille to, to uh, and making voting places accessible to people in wheelchairs, all of those things before ADA came along. And, um, and then as Attorney General, opening the door for, you know, direct political involvement by African Americans, uh, I felt was one of my greatest accomplishments. Awesome. The um, things that you've seen when you talk about your activism as a you know student through going into public office, civil rights were smack dab in the middle of uh, the celebrations for Jubilee here and uh, Bloody Sunday. Do you think that uh, in your lifetime um, things have come along and and uh, you know, things have improved enough, I should say, in the last 60 years, or do you believe that for Alabama, things have improved enough? So, uh, in the term, term of civil rights. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. In 1971, I worked for Charles Evers when he ran for governor of Mississippi. Well, let me say work for him. I, it was myself and Johnny Johnson, uh, Frank Frank M. Johnson's son, um, Johnny, who was unfortunately killed in a plane crash. Uh, but uh, Johnny and I and a couple of other students uh, had some leaflets printed on behalf of Charles Evers, who was the first African-American to run for governor, I think, in Mississippi. And we went over and helped out a little bit. But the uh, the, the long and short of it is that you know, I don't know that we can ever make enough progress. Uh, sure, there's been a lot of progress made, and and you know, but we've still got attitudinal barriers that, you know, that are obstinate and are hard to break down. And you know, as we can see from this current president, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to uh, to build on those attitudinal barriers and to make them stronger and worse and and that you know, further divides society in not just black and white and brown and tan and yellow and whatever, but it it divides us in ways that um you know that that just is not helpful to our democracy and you know we you know somewhere down the road we've got to you know we've got to have uh, an honest discussion about you know where we are as a country and and where we want to go as a people, and hopefully uh, put to rest uh, and you know let some of the the flames subside and the the coals the embers uh, you know burn out and. Uh, you know, from those ashes, maybe we can we can build a a society that uh, you know 
truly works together hand in hand, black and white, and uh, immigrant and non-immigrant. You know, it's just we've we've got a long way to go. But you know, I have faith as I, I dedicate my book to the faith that democracy will win out in the end, and I I, I do believe that that uh, that we will win out in the end. Um, you know, and until then, we will keep marching and and keep keep uh, crying out for freedom. So uh, I admire and respect all of those who will be participating in Bloody Sunday and, uh, you know, trying to remind us that uh, while we have come a long way, we still have a ways to go. You have this great book coming out on the 16th of June, which is my dad's birthday, actually. <laughs> And uh, we'll look forward to getting that book. But what else is uh, ahead for Don Siegelman? What do you see yourself doing now? Do you want to go back into politics? Do you want to be a politician? Oh, no, 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 no. My, first of all, my brother would either tackle me or shoot me in the back if I tried to qualify <laughs> for anything. But, um, no, let's, you know, I've, yeah, of course I wanted to be reelected in 2002, and... Um, if I had been reelected, I had plans to enter the you know, South Carolina primary, and a, a number—it's coming right up. But that was in—that <laughs> was in the South Carolina primary going into the 2004 cycle. Um, but um, Carl Rove and some of his buddies had other, and you know the. In, in stealing our democracy, I lay out how Carl Rove's fingerprints are all over my my case and why why I was targeted um and by whom and and how it was accomplished but you know we had sworn testimony that that Rove was involved with the Department of Justice and getting the Department of Justice to pursue me we had Carl Rove's client the attorney general of Alabama who now sits on the 11th circuit court of appeals who started the investigation, my investigation, it was picked up by Carl Rove's business partner in Alabama, Billy Canary's wife, who was then George W. Bush's U.S. attorney. Um, she started investigating me while her husband, Carl Rove's partner, ran my opponent's, Bob Riley's campaign against me. Um, that's kind of hard to believe, but uh, the Department of Justice didn't see a conflict there. They said no actual conflict existed, even though my prosecutor's husband was being paid to defeat me. Um, and then it was Carl Rove's client, the state attorney general again, Bill Pryor, who came in after I won re-election, seized the ballots in Baldwin County, uh, illegally providing for a certification that was only to take place two days later. I had requested a hand recount of the ballots in Baldwin County where overnight 6,000 of my votes had simply disappeared. There was, wow. There was, there was no explanation. There was no down-ballot race affected by the – they simply subtracted 6,000 of my votes and if you can kind of get a, a visual picture of a down ballot, a vertical picture of 
governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, treasurer, auditor, not one ballot race was affected by a single vote after taking 6,000 of my votes out of the picture completely. It is a physical impossibility, mathematical Mm -hmm. impossibility. So the attorney general, um, Carl Rove's client, seized the ballots, refused to let anybody count them, provided for the certification two days before the law allowed, and Bob Riley became the governor of the state of Alabama. Uh, it's interesting that we had really four whistleblowers, four Republican whistleblowers. I, I, in my book, Stealing Our Democracy, I talk about three. One is Jill Simpson, a Republican lawyer who who first gave sworn testimony to Congressman uh, Conyers, Chairman Conyers of the Judiciary Committee, that Rove was involved. Then we had the Republican uh, paralegal who worked for the Department of Justice who came forward, filed a formal whistleblower complaint, uh, laying out how the prosecution pressured and controlled the witness to lie. Uh, Then we had a former Republican lawyer for the Republican National Committee, Tommy Gallion from from Montgomery, who came forward and said that he was approached by the Republican Party chairman and was told of the plan to use the Department of Justice to take me out before the election. The fourth whistleblower, oddly enough, was Jack Abramoff. Jack Abramoff was uh, one of one of Carl Rove's college Republican buddies, along with. Ralph Reed, and another guy named Grover Norquist. Uh, Grover Norquist is still around as the head of something bogus bogus operation called the Americans for Tax Reform. Uh, Ralph Reed was the uh, chairman of, president of the bogus Christian coalition. It's anything but, uh, they proposed to be Christians, but they were, really were uh, a, a, an outlet for casino money that was being uh, funneled uh, from Mississippi Indians casinos to Choctaw Indians through Abramoff and Mike Scanlon, who was Bob Riley's, uh, on Bob Riley's congressional staff. They later pleaded, pleaded guilty to felonies and both served time in prison for for. Money, well, they didn't plead. They didn't plead guilty to money laundering, but I wish they had. But they pled guilty to other things. But they were laund- they laundered. Jack Abramoff admits in his book *Capital Punishment* that they laundered twenty million dollars of Indian casino money into Alabama, quote, to stop Sigelman and to stop the gaming that my proposals would have allowed the people of Alabama to vote on. Um, of course, the lottery was first, and and then we would have uh, followed that with uh, a vote on casinos. But um, I don't know. You know, we we uh, we didn't really have a whole lot of time to talk about that. But it's but that was all part of the who, what, when, and where that I, I talk about in stealing our democracy. But stealing our democracy, the book is. And what I say in that title is not about me. It is about our democracy. 
It is about the importance of preserving and protecting our democracy before it is – it's never going to be too late. Now, I shouldn't have even gone down that path, but – because I do have I do have faith that we that democracy will win in the end, but we have got to call out those people like Karl Rove and and Gonzalez and and Bill Barr and others and Donald Trump when they use the power of their office for a political end. And that was not done, even though it was John Conyers was was pushing as hard as he could at the time to get Congress to hold Carl Rove in contempt and lock him up and chain him to the to the basement of the U.S. Capitol if they had to. Um, but you know, by letting him go and not calling uh, the hand of, of, of President Trump in this recent uh, impeachment process. Um, really is a signal that we have not yet come to grips with the abuse of power and the use of the Department of Justice as a political weapon. Wow. Wow. This has been a great interview. I wanted to know, though, you don't want to go into politics. What do you see yourself doing? I know you're enjoying your family and whatnot. What do you, what do you see for Don Sigelman? <laughs> oh, I, I, I see... I see uh, Oh, gosh. You know, Sabrina, I, I, um, you know, it's, uh, on the one hand, I, I need to get down on my knees and ask for forgiveness for anything that I did or anything that I didn't do when I had the power to do something about it. But now I see that, you know, changing our criminal justice system in a way that helps prevent the abuse of power and and helps turn around our system of mass incarceration that provides a real second chance to first offenders, that provides for uh, a change of the mandate from lock them up and throw away the key to focusing on how to re- how to reverse recidivation. And and you know it's it's not that complicated. Um, I have I have written something that I was actually just looking at this morning, and I'm, I'm thinking about going ahead and, and getting it in shape to, to publish it online. It's just a, uh, a short primer on what we need to do to fix things in our criminal justice system, but uh, that's what I hope to do. I, if If my time in prison, if the suffering of my family, if the support of my the people who wrote me and prayed for me uh, and contributed to my legal defense fund is to mean anything. It hopefully uh, will be in the form of constructive action that helps preserve and protect our democracy. Awesome. Awesome. It's been a pleasure to 
have you on the show. And do you have a website? I know that, you know, your book is available through Amazon, but I'm sure it's going to be available from, you know, through many different channels. How do people get in touch with you? Do you have a website? Well, yes. Um, the, the best way is through just stealingourdemocracy.com. Uh, you know, if they want more information on my case, uh, well, stealingourdemocracy.com will lead them to uh, another website if they want to delve into all of the issues that we talked about today, um, minus my personal story, which is, you know, will be covered in my book. But Stealing Our Democracy, www.stealingourdemocracy.com is the best way to uh, get to the book and, and get to the history of who, what, why, and when, and where <laughs> all this started. Wow. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it, and we wish you the absolute best, not only with the book, but uh, your your life moving forward. That's right. I'm, I'm looking forward to every minute of every day. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you so much. All right. God bless. And God bless.